Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today we're talking Mixatonic Institute of Horror Studies, and in particular, an event coming up on May 17th, which is No Sense Makes Sense Guru's Cult Murder Movies. And the man responsible for explaining all that is Ian Cooper. Hello, Ian. Hi. Now, you've not been randomly chosen, obviously, to, uh, to cover <laughs> this subject. Um, but before, Because you've written a book called Family Values, The Manson Family on Film and TV, which is... When's that due out? Um, August. Beginning of August. August. And they've taken away the Family Values subtitle. Have they? They? Thought that was, they thought it was too sarcastic, yeah. So, uh, so, so the Manson family on film and TV. So, so it's quite literal, yeah. the title, then. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I wanted something <laughs> slightly more oblique, but um, I was told by the publishers that they they want the their titles have to be extremely illustrative. You know, right. they don't want anything too abstract or ironic. Yeah, so, I've covered yeah. books on here called The Art of Gothic, which was a book about gothic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right then, before we get into you and this book, let's just give people a... Uh, I'm going to give the listener a little sense as to what the Miskatonic is first, because I okay. think that's not exactly the most mainstream event in the world today. So, Miskatonic <laughs> Institute of Horror Studies, named for the f- name of the fictional university in H.P. Lovecraft's literary mythos, the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies is an international organisation that offers university-level history, theory and production-based masterclasses for people of all ages, founded by film writer and programmer Kiela Janassi in March 2010, with regular branches in London New York, as well as presenting special events worldwide. The UK branch is co-run with Josh Sacco of Cigarette Burn Cinema, a man who has been on this podcast talking about his Pete Walker film series. Now... You're, you're doing you're doing your lecture as a which always makes me laugh when uh, when it's offering university level history theory and production on what is a thing that I love like horror movies. So yeah. for you, what what writing a book about Charles Manson, a man who is a kind of international notorious icon, as uh, mm-hmm. almost like a kind of as far as I guess celeb serial killers go, 
he's he's up there, and plus with his um, yeah with his alternative cult and followers and stuff, it made him sort of one up above your uh, your Ted Bundys of this world, um, yeah, and the like. So. You, you as a writer, where, where do you start with somebody, or, or why do you start with someone like him, where there is already so much known? Well, to be honest, it really was just I wanted a slice of the sort of Manson mythos myself. It's something that's obsessed me mm-hmm. since I was a kid, and I just thought, um, I couldn't, there's no point in competing with something like Helter Skelter, mm-hmm. um, because that's you know written by one of the major players. So I thought I'd write something about Manson films and TV, partly because there's obviously films about the case, but there seem to be an awful lot of things. I think it started, I was watching a, an Italian film called Oasis of Fear. Yeah. And, you know, it's just it's nothing to do with the Manson family. But they have the writing on the wall at one point in blood, um, which seemed to sort of tap into the Manson story, you know, the, the, the messages on the wall written in blood. And I thought there's so much, so many sort of Manson references and sort of imagery in films. Um, so it was sort of my attempt to get in on the the Manson case, really, without doing any actual, you know, without going to L.A. and flying out there and interviewing people. Um, so, so it's more about what Charlie Manson has spawned in terms of popular culture. You're, you're, you've, you've sort of chosen to go down the path of. Yeah, that's the sort of focus, but then it branched out because obviously you're writing about things like, you know, LSD, Mm. which was important to the the family story, but also is a really big thing in exploitation cinema. Yeah. And then you move on to things like the the moral panics about LSD that there's been. And, you know, with the Manson girls, you know, you're you're looking at things like the way that, you know, the scary women... um, so it linked into a lot of things, and also I, I realised I had to write a lot about the case because partly, obviously, you can't assume everybody knows a lot about it. Mm. And also because it was it was sort of happening as I was writing it because Manson was supposed to be marrying this woman, um, Star, and then it turned out that he wasn't going to marry her because she wanted his body to display when he died. Right. And then... Just when I was about to finish the book, you know, it's like an ongoing story. There's Manson family members are always being denied parole at different times. And, and then he died just as I was about to hand the book in. So then I had, to, I had to add stuff about the response to his death, which was kind of fascinating in itself. Um, so it's the, a lot of the focus is, you know, on sort of media inspired by by the family. Um it's also, you know, quite directly about the family too. I mean, it, it, it's talking to you now about it. It's kind of weird, weird timing because at the moment on Netflix, one of their biggest hits is is Wild Wild Country, which is about a sort of an alternative religious movement that tried to upset uh, Christian, yeah, yeah. Christian values up in um, the northern north, northwest states of America. Um, mm. And as we were saying before we started this, it's sort of that idea of an alternative religious movement, of which, obviously, Charles Manson, as the figurehead, is also the demagogue, isn't he? Of, of, mm. of If you're going to lead people, then you must be have leadership values and stuff. So what, what, is, it, what is it you think that, that sort of creates this? I think the, word, the words that is used in, in the press release for, for, your, for your, your lecture is dark glamour. I mean, that sounds like an oxymoron, but maybe, maybe there is something in that. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think the thing is partly 
what explains the Manson thing is often when uh, serial killers are caught. I mean, recently they, they caught this guy, the Golden State Killer, last mm-hmm. week. And I've been following that, and I, in my head I had this vision of him as this kind of, you know, criminal mastermind. And they get him, and he's just this old guy. You know, he, he looks like anybody else. And I think often that's the case when they catch criminals. They, they turn out, they're quite disappointing in reality. And Manson, you know, he was like a rock star. I mean, you know, he took loads of drugs with all these women. And, you know, he looked like Jesus. Um, and, you know, I think that he, he had this very glamorous appeal. And then there was people at the time. It's really interesting to see that people thought the crimes were political. You know, so the Weathermen, the, the left-wing organisation said the Weathermen dig Charles Manson off in those books. And there was this sense that he was um, some sort of political radical. Um, and he's, you know, I think it's that he didn't disappoint, that he had that. I guess it's the same kind of glamour as, you know, why people are still obsessed with the Nazis, you know, on the mm. craze. It's like, you know, it, there's a, on one level it's trying to outrage people. And on the other hand, there's a kind of, um, you know, he, he he's this very charismatic figure. Although when you watch a lot of interviews, you're aware of how much of what he says is actually just gibberish, you know. It's it's memorably put, but it, it's gibberish. Which I think, I think that's, that was one of the things watching the, the, the recent thing on Netflix was that I watched sort of 10, 10 episodes, wherever it was that they ran, and I still wasn't mm. actually sure what the actual movement was about, despite... 10,000 people decanting to the countryside and dressing in red. Um, so, I mean, and, and there is, and that, and it's interesting that Charles Manson is about many things, but nobody seems to be sure exactly what he is about, but people did follow him, people killed for him. Um, yeah. I mean, is, is, do, do, do you, with, with it, with it being that, getting that political tag, um, and the accusations about white supremacy, about what a race war, um, but then just writing pop songs and taking LSD. They don't seem to go together very well. No, but I think it... it I mean, you're right, they don't. And it's quite weird because um, after reading about um, Manson, I've recently been reading quite a bit about Jim Jones and Jonestown. Yeah. And it's weird how that fits in with what you say about the, the Bagwan and stuff. But you, it's just a kind of hodgepodge of things, you know, of... of you know, vague ideas and things like that. I think LSD is a massive thing in the Manson case because one of the women, Leslie Van Houten, actually believed that she was growing wings while she was in prison. She thought she was going to turn into a fairy. And I think if you are dropping acid every day, mm. you know, several times a day, and, you know, you're living in the desert, quite, it's easy to see how people believed some pretty weird stuff. And I think Manson was... Rather than being some sort of philosopher, he could tell people what they needed to hear. You know, he'd been in prison for more than half his life. Of various institutions, anyway, children's homes, prisons. So he had prison smarts, you know. He knew how to tell people what they wanted. He knew how to, 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 to find people's weak spots. So I think he was making it up as he went along, and like gurus often do. And I think the followers were both charmed by his charisma and completely out of their out of their heads you know yeah there's there's a, there's, there's, there's a sort of if i call it it's a crude pattern to analyze but if you look at the the sort of the idea of alternative religious movements and 
a place like California, which is in a very wealthy country, mm. um, and then you get the stuff that happened in the subcontinent, which was largely down to wealthy Westerners traveling and elevating various other people who taught mumbo jumbo to heights yeah. and then brought that back and said, I've found the answer to the world. Yeah. Um, and, I, and it made me think about uh, Sam Harris's book, End of Faith, which, you know, from his kind of neuroscience mm-hmm. point of view, looking, looking at, you know, what is it about the human condition that makes us want something to follow? Um, because counterculture is about getting away from the man, and yet alternative movements are about banding together and following a leader. So it's almost like swapping one shit sandwich for a crap sandwich. Yeah, but then that, I, I remember somebody once pointed out that the Hells Angels, they, the Hells Angels felt oppressed by society, so they broke away and formed a society with far more rules than the society <laughs> away from. And that seems to be the case with, you know, with, with gurus often. I think partly it's this idea that you, you can give up responsibility. You know, somebody's there to make the decisions for you. Hmm. And I think that that's, it's interesting that the Manson family didn't really appeal to kind of, you know, the, Apart from Manson, they were mostly kind of well-brought-up, disillusioned, middle-class people. And so I think, you know, it kind of appealed to them, this idea of him basically being their boss. I think, you know, people, a lot of people seem to want that. But, yeah, it's also, I think it's the context of the 60s. People just assumed, a lot of people assumed, like the Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys and uh, Neil Young or whatever, when they met Manson, they thought he was this kind of groovy cat. You know, he had long hair, he took drugs. Um, and, it, you know, people went along with it, and it was only later on they found out that he was a con man or a racist and all this, this stuff. It's interesting that, isn't it? That, that in, in, in normal day life, if you wear a nice suit and have a clean haircut, you can con your way into anything. And then in counterculture... Mm. The more of a wreck you look, the more the more you abuse your body, the more convincing you are as an authentic oh, yeah. countercultural person. It was very much at that time. I remember somebody saying about the post Easy Rider in Hollywood. If you walked into a meeting and you know you had a beard and beads and you smelt a grass, they'd give you a, a contract to make a film. You know, it was a very specific time when you know it was, um, and it was obviously the Manson murders were part of what changed the notion of celebrity you know it was quite in for celebrities to mix with normal people to show that they're so Manson had access to a lot of these people you know that's how he he kind of became a sort of important person in LA for a brief time you know meeting important musicians yeah 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 from from your experience sort of researching the book um what what was your in terms of like we established at the start you know it is a well-known figure you're going to do your own drill down so from Mm. your from from your perceptions of what or who Charles Manson was, and then from what you then uncover through your journey writing about him for this book, what what new things did you find out that surprised you? Um, I think it, it sounds weird, but he there is a part of me that found him more sympathetic than I thought. Really? Um, In what way? Yeah, well, because in a lot of ways he's a ghastly human being, but he he really didn't have much of a chance. I mean, it's, he tells, seems to tell a lot of lies about his childhood. He seemed to, you know, he may or may not have been sold to a waitress for a pitcher of beer by his mum. Yeah. But certainly he seemed quite sincere. A story repeated a lot was the only pleasant memory he had of childhood was the time his mother came out of prison and hugged him. 
and there is a sense that he was trying to trying to survive trying to um get by and, and to some degree it snowballed out of control so what obviously the things he did were awful but it, it's interesting he died uh, around the same time as ian brady Brady seemed, you know, the more you read about Brady, the more of a sort of loathsome character he seems, like a really deeply unpleasant person. Yeah, not yeah, just, yeah. You know, they're not just the child killing, but, you know, arrogant and unpleasant and, you know, hectoring. And and Manson, I think, uh, there's a moment when he's interviewed by Geraldo Rivera in a famous jailhouse interview. Hmm. And Geraldo you know, is quite an unpleasant character anyway. And right at the end... Charlie says to him, you know, that was a piece of shit. We could have done much better. And it's like, you know... Wow. He's, yeah, he's enough of, uh, of an entertainer to realise that. Um, you know, I, I think... He always professed his innocence, and I think that's rubbish. And I do think, you know, I don't buy these kind of... What they call Give Charlie a Chance websites, where they say he, he was just an unfortunate victim of circumstance. But I was... It, it's hard to... To escape the fact that he he didn't really have much of a chance, you know. I mean, to some degree, obviously. I like I like the fact that, that in in the because um, because I don't you don't think of of um, of something like counter, the countercultural movement, alternative cults, and stuff having having mu- much influence on Britain. But but in in the, in the Britflix podcast series of two five great British horrors, three mm-hmm. three films you won't be surprised to learn come up regularly. Uh, which find a general blood and Satan's claw and Wickerman, yeah, it's obviously the folklore trilogy, as it were, and they and they all and probably blood on Satan's claw more than the other two, even though Wickerman mm. is set in contemporary times, says a lot more about the influence of countercultural uh, influences and and and, um, and and maybe what you might hook into an influence coming from Charles Manson, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I. I think that's that's in the book. I've written quite a lot about uh, Blood on Satan's Claw in the book because it it seems to be. I mean, I saw the the, the screenwriter Robert Wynn Simmons talking at a conference years ago. Yeah, and he said he was really conscious of the Manson murders and the Mary Bell murder. You know, mm. they said that children were murderers, young people were murderers, and it's there's so much of that in the. Also, Blood on Satan's Claw makes it look quite fun. You know, there's. Angel is this really sort of sexy, charismatic character. Mm. I sense it's like a game that gets out of control. Um, and I think that that's to some degree what it felt like to certain, you know, to people in the family that um, just, you know, being young and wild and it, it ended in murder. Um, yeah, and I think that is, that is there. And also because there's a preoccupation in British horror with the clash of generations. Mm. Uh, and so I guess, you know, the Manson family is a really extreme um, version of that. You know, the, the, you know, the young people out of control. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is definitely, obviously, popular culture was a young people thing, as it were. Mm. Rock and roll and pop music became ways, sort of, mediums expression that had never, the likes of which had never been seen before. Um, you know, the working classes... Especially, we're getting we're getting involved in sort of in sort of things that we're getting them more visible than they ever have been, and mm, um, yeah. and I seem to remember um, I think it was, I can't remember what documentary it was in, but it was it was um, after the uh, help the hell's the deaths at the Altamont, um, mm. the hell's angels stabbing, isn't it at Altamont? Yeah, um, I think it's Rumsfeld or Cheney, I can't remember who it is now. Basically, basically announces 
sort of that's it now. Your hippie dream's over. It's time yeah. for conservatives to take take back control again. Because this this, this moment in the sixties, this sort of decade of almost like decadence of, of like liberalness, was like, yeah. do you see what happens if you let you get out of control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's part of the appeal of fans. Naturally, is that whereas for some people he's a similar rebellion, for others he's a and I told you so character. Mm. You know, this is what happens if you grow your hair long and drop acid. Um, you know, this is what happens if... I think there was this sense that, you know, hippies were seen as kind of benevolent or angry with injustice, angry with racism, angry about the war in Vietnam, and all of a sudden they, they just seemed psychotic. And he was perfect for that, I think, because the look, you know, the the eyes and the... Um, and, he, you know, he looked... You know, you had the whole thing, the, the tie-dyed shirts and the... Um, yeah, I think he was very useful if you if you wanted to say that, you know, drugs and uh, free love screw you up, then I guess, you know, you could point to him as the as the proof of that. Indeed, indeed. Um, so, so where... Uh, just, just, just thinking of it on the on, on the British film influence, where where else did you find the influence of the Mansus murders within sort of British cinema in your, in your research? It's... And not only in um, Blood on Satan's Claw, that's the most extreme example, but also Cry of Banshee. Okay. Which is a, a lesser film, I think. Yeah. But in that, that's very much the same. It's got, um, you know, the, the, the witch cult is they're kind of chanting and they're, um, they're clearly modelled on hippies. But there's a really weird dynamic in both Satan's Claw and Cry of the Banshee because... Um, which finder general shows this kind of destructive authority figure mm-hmm. victimizing young people in both Blood on Satan's Claw and Cry of the Banshee? They're so right to victimize them because they are, you know, um, an evil cult or they are uh, satanic werewolves or whatever they are in Cry of the Banshee. Yeah. So it, it's got a very sort of complicated, you know, confused message. Um, because Gordon Hessler, who made Cry the Banshee, said, oh, you know, Vincent Price character is this, you know, really oppressive character like Judge Daly in Chicago who attacked the rioters at the Democratic Convention. But he's actually fighting real witches, you know, real. So it's there's a kind of confused, um, contradictory message going on. Mm. In those films, I think. Where, where do you, for you, in your in your search for sort of the influence of Manson on film and TV, where hmm. where where do you see, where where would people see the first seeds of it? I mean, is it is it is it already happening while he's sort of, you know, raging as it were, in a very public and and, and a and a countercultural figure who's making noises? And I'm not sh- I'm not sure from what I remember how how public his 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 profile was. I mean, obviously. Knocking about with celebrities who thought he was fab and groovy doesn't mm. doesn't, doesn't do you any harm, or, or or is the is the birth of the sort of and and, and I'm guessing you you coined the, the coined the term mansemploitation, yeah, for the yeah. very good very well done there. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, is that something that's born after the conviction, or is that something that already was was in general circulation come 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 the time he was convicted? What's What's weird is that it. I started the book before the murders because there's a film like Eye of the Devil, which has made Sharon Tate a star. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's all about sort of sacrifice and the occult. And, of course, Rosemary's Baby, which has all these... I'm watching Rosemary's Baby for the book again, which is a film I've seen a lot. It's interesting how many 
little references there are that, that Guy tells Rosemary, oh, we're going to go to Hollywood and live in a big house in Beverly Hills with a pool. Um, and knowing, you know, the, the year after mm. uh, that, that, that that would actually happen and end so badly. Um, and Count Yorga Vampire. That, that's a weird one because that came out, um, that opened just a few months before the trial. Mm. You've got this kind of charismatic figure living in L.A., surrounded by this kind of harem of, you know, gruesome women. Um, and straight after the trial, I think because the trial was such uh, big news, you know, the imagery of it, the women who waited on the street outside the courthouse, the shaved heads. And um, there was quite a lot of stuff, um, you know, photos of Manson being, and film of him going in and out of court. He would really play up to all that. Yeah. So quite quickly you've got... Um, you know, proper, the first real Manson's exploitation things were just references. There's a soft porn film um, called Gabrielle from 1970. Yeah. The same year as the trial, which uh, figures there's a, a mad doctor come cult leader called Matson. Yeah. <laughs> um, and by then you had the cult um, in 1971. So very, very quickly, you know, you start to get exploitation films are interested in any way because you know it's like with with acid and with with all these things it's always the the exploitation films that are first because they're often made very quickly mm. um and they they're keen to exploit current events so by 1971 there was already a kind of you know an established there was things like the other side of madness and sweet savior and um and also they were easy to make then that's one of the things that i think is interesting you could get actors that looked like that. You could get crash pads that looked like that. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the later examples of Manson movies, it takes quite a lot of production design. And unless it's really, there's a lot of money spent, it always looks kind of phony. Whereas if you look at a film like uh, Sweet Saviour from 1971 with Troy Donahue right. as the Manson character, it's, it, it looks, it has a really sort of authentic feel to it. Um, and, a film called The Other Side of Madness made the same year. They could actually film at Sparn Ranch. You know, they actually got to film in some of the locations. Gee whiz. Uh, yeah, because they were moving so quick. What is weird, there's a strange sort of subgenre of Manson-related things. Films which were shot at Sparn Ranch before the murders. So there's a couple of Al Adamson films and uh, westerns that were filmed there. Hmm. So that's got kind of cult appeal for that. So it... Um, and I Drink Your Blood, you know, the infamous exploitation movie. Yeah. When David Durston was writing that, he said the trial was on. It was going to be just about rabies. But he was aware that the Manson trial was on, and he, he said something about his mean face was everywhere. Um, and so he wrote in this sort of satanic cult subplot. Um it's, yeah. it, it is almost like it's... I mean, if you, I mean by the 80s, we, this, this, this had sort of... This is where you get the sort of satanic panic. It's interesting, just with your reference in Rosemary's Baby, I hadn't really... It's almost like that's a precursor for the panic, the idea of Satan being present, as if to prove yeah. we should believe in God so we can keep Satan at bay. Because um, we're forever... As much as we struggle to find Jesus, because if we said someone was Jesus, we'd lock him up, wouldn't we? But we're quite yeah. happy to, to give someone the label of Lucifer or Satan. You know, as sure. if to say, you're among us, the Antichrist, you know, and all that. And it's yeah. almost like, it's a simple badge, isn't it, to give to a baddie 
Yeah, of course, to, yeah. To help keep everyone scared of whatever evil might be. I remember mm. uh, this, this um, I forgot the name of the author, Elaine Paglia, The Origins of Satan. And, mm. and you look at that, it's, it's talking about sort of BC, you know, so many years BC and then not long after Jesus is born and stuff. And essentially it's a bunch of people, much like these cults, going, do you know what, I don't like your religious order, so I'm going to form my own with slightly yeah. similar rules. But we're gonna. The one thing we are gonna keep consistent is there's this dark force called Satan. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, you, I mean, I guess you need an enemy, don't you? You need yeah. a a bogeyman. I mean, that. But that's also that. That's the function of Manson, I yeah. guess. You know, that he is. He's an ideal bogeyman because he sits with the swastika and, you know, he's he's kind of, um, perfect for that. Yeah. I mean, committing not only the horrendous acts, but he was willing to to go on TV and to to talk about it and he didn't break down in tears and you know plead for sympathy or anything yes yes i suppose anyone that's gone ahead and done something evil and doesn't show that they regret it or they feel some sympathy towards those that are dead is is evil personified isn't it in terms of the yeah. mainstream press and stuff i'm fascinated just finally it's fascinated how you've kind of you, you kind of I, I don't know if this is the lecture or, or and or your book but <laughs> The, uh, the idea of bringing us into the 21st century and an ongoing fascination, and you mentioned films like The Invitation and, and The Strangers in, in, the, uh, in the summary of what you're going to be talking about. There was not, is, that, does that, is that feature as part of your book as well? Yeah, yeah, because there seems to be this massive wave of Manson stuff. I mean, I've been interested in the family since I was at school, and there was fast stretches where the only things that were being made were things like Manson family movies and made by Manson obsessives. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there's TV shows like Aquarius and um, and a film like The Strangers. And it's, I think there's a few reasons. One is because of the of nine eleven. You know, nine eleven is like is like the Tate murders in terms of it says to people you're not as safe as you think you are. You know, that random violence can happen anywhere to anybody. And I think also there's this fascination with ISIS. You know, they keep, people keep calling them a death cult, and the notion of the, you know, some guy who's, who uses the internet who ends up a lone wolf terrorist who blows himself up somewhere, and it it makes people think I think of mind control and brainwashing and cults and all those things, and and that leads back to Manson to a lot of people. I think. God, it really, listening to you talk there, it is it really is like a war on semantics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It is. <laughs> Yeah, it is, and also this, the phrasing of it, you know, the, the brainwash, you're brainwashing and robots and, you know, death cults and all these phrases, these kind of incredibly emotive phrases. And also it's like the, um, I read somewhere, somebody said that in the, the, the 60s there was two threats, there was the Manson family, the enemy within, and there was the Viet Cong. Mm. And, and ISIS, a, a perfect, they're a combination of both, you know, they're yeah. kind of out there and they're here at the same time um and i think also people um there's there's obviously a massive part of it is that manson died recently so there's been this enormous you know revisiting yeah um, of of the crime although he was never really out of the public eye that's what's strange you know because of the tv interviews and stuff you never really went away no, no, true, true. I think that's a. I think he's a, if he, if he'd, if he'd have done his crimes, I don't know, fifteen years earlier, we probably wouldn't be remembering him in the same way, would we? No, no, exactly. And also, it's a part. It's things like if he'd been British, there wouldn't be the same. You know, like Brady was this kind of. He was in the newspapers, but we didn't see him all the time 
he wasn't giving TV interviews. And I think, I mean, they, they changed the law in, in the 90s. The state of California banned jailhouse interviews. So, they're, you know, and Manson was apparently upset about that. Um, I bet he was. <laughs> yeah, well, he said it's not what he says. It was the dance. He'd often dance in the interviews. And he said it was the dance that got his ideas across better than his words, you see. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess, I mean, it's 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 a work of fiction trying to cover a, 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 a something that really happened. But Mindhunter was really interesting, the David Fincher TV series, where you get that FBI person going in to talk to the the psychopath, and then realizing the psychopath strung them along. Yeah, you know, this expert in crime and 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 what and the law is 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 thinking they're they're now because they've locked someone up, they're no longer powerful. But actually. Yes. What's in somebody's head is really hard to unlock, isn't it? And yeah, yeah, of course. And I think also there's the um, the fascination. I, I mean, I do think that's that's interesting. In whereas in Britain we lock people up and they you know, their their sort of media presence stops. There is this thing um, in America of access, but also because they're this, they're not so restricted in their press, so they tend to be much more. Um, you know, lurid accounts of, of killers and stuff. Indeed. Well, look, sir, uh, let's remind people, what's the uh, what's the lecture you're going to be giving? Uh, it's No Sense Makes Sense. Uh, gurus, cults, murder and movies. And that's May and 17th at the Horse Hospital, yep. which I probably should say where that is, actually. Never said that first time. Yeah, the Horse Hospital, yeah, in Bloomsbury. Yeah, which is Bloomsbury uh, Colonnade. I'll put a link in the show notes so people can, can hunt that out themselves. It's near uh, Russell Square Tube, if people know central London. Um, yeah. only gives me to say thank you very much Ian for uh, giving us that talk there about uh, Charlie Manson's uh, <laughs> wild influence <laughs> over popular culture it does it still blows my mind yeah no it's, it's weird you know the whole thing is a bit weird but when it's interesting when I would tell people you know I'm writing a book about Manson um, when I said I was writing a book on British horror people were like oh yeah you know I like Hammer but with Manson people were really you know they, they, they were quite intrigued it's uh, so, and before you go then, so what's, what's the name of the book you've got coming out? It's... The Manson Family on Film and TV, and it's published by McFarlane in August. And you've also got uh, a, a new Devil's Advocate book coming out as well, Fran Fra on Frenzy, have you? Yeah, I have, yeah, that's, that's coming out really soon. It's like, you know, like buses, you wait for ages and then two come along at once. Well, look, more yeah, buzz. That comes out quite soon, Frenzy, yeah, so... Uh... Okay, yeah. I'll put a link to the uh, Devil's Advocate page and then people can follow that for news. All right, well, thanks again for your time. Well, thank you. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.